Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics in historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my co-host, Suzanne Rain. Today, we are very, very pleased to welcome Dr. Hugo Bromley, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre of Geopolitics, and we are going to talk about unions, particularly, actually, the British Union. So welcome, Hugo. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And it's good to be back after a very, very, very long absence. So tell us, Hugo, what is a political union, first of all? So there are lots of forms of political union, is the shortest answer to that. But in essence, it is any kind of associated decision-making at its core, but you can have various levels of that. And perhaps the best way to go through this is to talk about it in the context of how the UK union was formed. And the most basic form of union in political history is some kind of dynastic union, right? You live in a system with monarchies, and the same guy managed to inherit two things. So you have a theoretical tie-in, which might shape your geopolitics, which might shape your foreign policy. But that's all there is. That can then evolve and grow. And the two really crucial ways it can evolve are in terms of integrating markets and integrating wider political systems. So you might start to think it's a bit mad that we have all these borders between the different parts of our union. And you might want to build a single market that is regulated centrally. You might also start manipulating and changing or even abolishing different political institutions within your union and refashioning and reforming it. So political unions, as we've discovered to our source of interest in recent years, evolve over time and change over time. And in a way, that's the thing that makes it so complicated to understand is because certainly in the UK's case, the the length of time during which the unions of the various parts of the UK have evolved is a thousand years. Yes. So it's it's way beyond any of our natural memory to be able to to really understand the roots of that, which is what we're going to try and do today. And it, <laughs> it's no it's no small task for you know 40 minutes of podcast but I'm confident that the two of you both of whom have written and talked on this Ali most particularly um you with your very lovely small book These Islands which oh, I recommend Thank you for mentioning that Suzanne Everybody Very very good indeed It's very very good and it's very very short And it's both very very things, short it um, certainly is I mean to, to go back Hugo to to what you were saying um before I start blushing I mean, obviously, dynastic unions are quite common. I mean, certainly in, yeah. in, in Europe, um, in the experience. And of course, these dynastic unions come and go. And, and, you know, one of the largest, obviously, are the various sort of Habsburg, you know, denominations that you see uh, throughout the early modern period. And so, you know, the idea of a dynastic union between England and Scotland from the 17th century onwards is actually par for the course in some ways, if you look at what's going on in Spain yeah. and other places where. But I think What's striking about the certainly the Anglo-Scottish Union? I mean, we we can yeah. set aside for a moment. Obviously, the Welsh experience is somewhat different uh, in in that respect, as far as England is concerned. But say the Anglo-Scottish Union is the peculiar nature of its sort of merging. It's a parliamentary union, but a parliamentary union in a sense that pays a lot of respect to the differences that exist between the two kingdoms. Am I right? Yes, you are. And actually, the really the the thing I study um, and the thing that's that people need to engage with is the question of why mm. a decision is taken to essentially evolve that union from a pure dynastic one to one that shares one parliament. And indeed, after so this is the Union of 1707, which is the act creating 
um, the Union of England and Scotland. And indeed, in most parliamentary sources after that, they don't refer to Scotland at all. Yeah. They refer to it as North Britain yeah. or that part of Britain formerly called Scotland. And they make this whole pain to emphasize the unity of the two, despite the fact they have different religious systems, different legal systems, different educational systems, different tax systems in some cases. So the question is why they did it. And there are, there are two basic reasons why that union evolved and changed. One is dynastic and inheritance. We're talking very late Stuarts here, right? So there are debates over whether Scotland will follow England in wanting what was known as the Hanoverian succession, which are the electors of Hanover who are going to come over and become kings, and that will secure the monarchy to be Protestant, right? So there's a debate there. The other reason why that union is coming through, and this is what I think is underestimated and needs to be emphasized more, is that we're entering into a world of global projects and global trade. And in that world, it's really difficult to manage land borders between two things. And if you're going to be a state acting in global trade, that's really difficult. So you have multiple things. The most famous example of this is something called the Darien Project, which is when the Scottish mercantile community decide they want their own version of the East India Company. And the original vision of the Darien Company is to trade with India, whereupon the English East India Company say, you can't do that. You're going to import all this product. There's no border between England and Scotland, really. It's all just going to come across the border. So they get vetoed from trading with India by the English parliament and end up trying to found a colony in Panama to trade across the Pacific. And it all goes terribly wrong. But it largely goes terribly wrong because the English parliament block them from doing things because of this problem, right? We have two countries and we're trying to develop systems of political economy in a global world and they don't get on. There are other examples I could get to from the English side, but it's those two drivers, this dynastic driver and a, and a kind of how do we manage ourselves? How do we manage borders in global trade that, are, that, that cause it to evolve and move? I mean, the other interesting thing, Hugo, of course, is the attitude from the Scottish side, which is which is quite interesting, of course, in that people forget that there was quite a strong pro-union yep. sort of set of thinking in Scotland. I mean, there were debates, clearly, but there were those that also felt that how it, how best to manage the relationship with this sort of, you know, our bigger neighbour down south. And, you know, in some ways, they understood that, you know, union, well managed, of course, and properly sort of defined, might be in the best interests of the Scots as well. So there were two sort of momentums. And I think we also forget, of course, there was opposition to any sort of type of union in England as well, of course. I mean, there, there, there was both opposition and support uh, from both sides. And I, I, I agree the sort of the, one of the striking things about the union between Scotland and England and the creation, we should emphasize, of course, as you, as you mentioned, of the Kingdom of Great Britain, is that, you know, it's, it's basically driven by sort of an economic momentum. So I always find that quite interesting, rather than a, an explicit, in a sense, political union, if I can put it that way. What they're doing, actually, is they're creating the environment for an economic merger of interests, effectively. So in a sense, that sort of grows organically. I mean, I, I'm, I'm simplifying it, obviously, but it, it, it's, it's an interesting approach, shall we say. It, it absolutely is. And it's a product of a time period in which global trade is growing, That's in right, which you yeah. have increasing trade between Europe and Asia that is making people think about economies in different ways. You have increasing colonial development. You have an increase in the slave trade, actually, that is heavily driven by the English. So you, you have a world in which global trade is becoming a big, scary thing we want to engage with, full of opportunities and full of risks. So you talked earlier about English opposition to the Union. One of the drivers of English concern about an independent Scotland or sort of independent Scotland and support for the Union mm. comes from this really obscure little world called wool smuggling. 
because one of the things that Britain wants to do is it wants to strengthen textile manufacturing in order to provide employment to people, right? And a really crude way of doing that is you ban anyone from bringing wool out of your country so it can all be manufactured domestically. But of course, if you've got a land border with Scotland, all the wool just gets shipped to Scotland where the ban doesn't apply. So I remember being in the archives when I found the commissioners for the prevention of the export of wool, who are 300 people on horses who, among other things, were riding up and down between Newcastle and Carlisle trying to enforce what we would now call a hard border um, between, <laughs> between 1698 and about 1702-03. It fails miserably, of course. But this is the point, is that if you're trying to make, as all European states are, very, very rudimentary steps towards things we would now call political economy, mm. the first thing you need to resolve is, where is your economic border? How does it work? And how do we define it? And unions are a way of doing that and of making that clear. I, I mean, one of the things also, I think, I mean, you do mention, uh, obviously, the um, that political dimension. Mm. And, you know, when we look at the geopolitics of it, of course, is that you know, the Union comes about during the War of the Spanish Succession. Yes. One American historian has quite wittily said that actually, it's not really the War of the Spanish Succession. We would better understand it as the War of the English Succession, because it really has to do with the fact of how, you know, that Hanoverian succession is, you know, whether it's confirmed or not. I mean, it's quite interesting in terms of England also wanting to protect its northern border from, shall we say, the possibility that Scotland as an, as an independent power would be a sort of a uh, a platform for the French or any other troublemaker on the continent. Could you just, for the, for the benefit of everybody, could you mm. explain the background, I'm sorry, to the War of Spanish Succession, because okay. otherwise what you're about to say might not be completely in context? That's totally fair enough. And when two historians get together who know I about know. stuff, yes. terms like War of the Spanish Succession get used, which exactly. um, most so, people so, might not be familiar so, with. Okay, so what so, exactly was that and how did that impact on things? There are a series of conflicts through the late 17th century, which can broadly be defined as wars of French expansionism of one kind or another. Many of them are targeted towards Holland. We're back to dynastic unions again, right? So from 1688, the King of England is also the King of Holland. These unions keep popping up and keep causing conflicts, and that brings Britain in then. The War of Spanish Succession is actually about Louis XIV trying to put a relation, I think his brother, on the throne of Spain, and then Habsburgs have their own claimant. And so, again, attempts at dynastic union are causing conflict. The geopolitical context is really important because this is a time when Europe and European political systems are so often shifting and moving around. And of course, we're only a few decades after the English Civil War, which most people would now term the War of Three Kingdoms, when you had very different conflicts going on, again, over questions of authority and how much power vests in London, you have a whole civil war in this country that obviously ends with the execution of the monarch. So the, the whole 17th century is, is this time of real ferment, but also real thinking and real engagement with ideas, real economic change and expansion, and really quite astonishing intellectual thought about what a state should be and how it should work and how we should define it. And it's the combination of those two things, the ferment of a, of a political and economic kind and the thought that I think really drives the innovations of the late 17th and early 18th century. So so back to the War of Spanish Succession. So, so, okay. what, so, so, so what happened that became the driver for bringing together England and Scotland? So, so what, what from a geopolitical context? Well, so the point that Ali's just made is that this should really be called the War of English Succession. So I wanted to understand why. So we have, post again, 
the, the difficulty with talking about unions in this period is a lot of them are dynastic, and this quickly gets very, very confusing in the manner of a Habsburg family tree. But in essence, England is ruled by one dynasty, the Stuarts. Um, in 1688, there is a break because the Catholic Stuart monarch is kicked out and his Protestant daughter is brought in who is married to the King of Netherlands. That was the first, that was the Dutch Union I mentioned. That's 1688. Very, very crudely conceived. They are succeeded by Anne, who is dying by the time we get to sort of mid-first decade of the 18th century. And the problem is, do you bring that old Catholic dynasty back, who were, of course, by origin Scottish, or do you find a related dynasty, the, the nearest one at hand, as it were, is the German dynasty, the Hanoverians, to come over and assume that monarchy to maintain things to be possible. Although I, thought yeah. I, should, I should just interject on the anomalies here, that when yes. you say it's the nearest one available, I think the Hanoverian succession was like the 51st. Yeah. Succession. yeah it, was, it, it, was the, it was the nearest one that would do. Yeah, it was the nearest one that seemed to be, that seemed to satisfy the parliament. I, I mean, I think that the thing we ought to get about the war of the Spanish succession, of course, is that the reason why Europe went to war with France really over that the War of the Spanish Succession is because with the death of the Spanish king, the heir to the Spanish throne was the, the French Dauphin, which basically, you know, alerted Europe to this notion that there would be a Franco-Spanish Union, dynastic union at least. So the war was really fought to prevent that union taking place. I mean, that, what that's... We, what, what we're guessing at here, right, is yeah. that Europe in, a, in an early modern period quite often was completely chaotic because the relationship between places and governments was quite fluid. Yeah. Things could move. People moved around all the time. Aristocracies moved. It's always fun when you're reading the records of Spanish governors of um, Caribbean islands, because half of them are Irish, because that aristocracy left Ireland and many of them moved to Spain and became senior figures. So, you know, you get... These these very very Irish names with a Y in front, and mm. then they're the gut, and then they're in Havana or something. So it's a very fluid world. What happens in England and then in Britain, and we can we need to talk about Ireland, and we'll do in a sec, is that one system, a parliamentary system with essentially a, a monarch, as as he says, there at the grace of the of the parliament. Right, he's fifty first on the list. He'll do. Get him in. <laughs> that system embeds. And it embeds in the country. And you manage to get, I mean, in economics, they would call it an open access institution. I have problems with that framing. But we manage to get a set of institutions that are permanent mm. and that can remain in place as part of a union, even while the cast of characters change. And essentially what you're saying is that was necessary in order to be a modern state or a powerful state in the world, because if you have within your own island a complicated border, which means that you know the economies are different, it it, it was all everything was undermining everything, and it was yes. that that's what you're saying there. So, yes. What matters geopolitically, and this is why I mean, perhaps some listeners are wondering why on earth we're talking about 18th century British political history on a podcast about geopolitics. The reason is that it's a very useful demonstration of the importance of knowing what your country is and how its political system works to effective action in a global world, whether that's economic, whether that's political, whether that's actually defense and security, that is the first step always. And when there are confusions over what is in a union and what isn't, mm. that, is, that makes it infinitely harder for any state to act geopolitically. 
Britain has just discovered that actually, is a, which is a point that we'll get to. We are we are a podcast of geopolitics in historical context, there, Hugo. So we're doing we're doing a lot of historical context, but that's not good, bad. Good. It's, it's quite refreshing for me, I have to say, because we do far too much geopolitics as far as I'm concerned. Can I? Can I? I wanted uh, before we move on. I think we should move on to Ireland. Be, yes, but we before we do, I just wanted to. I didn't know Hugo until you talked about it about the Darien project, which, as you said, was this kind of Kingdom of Scotland scheme to gain wealth and influence by establishing New Caledonia in yes. Panama. But the thing that it made me, um, you may or may not know, but I did some research into General Oglethorpe, who was a British general from a Stuart-supporting family, also an Etonian and a graduate of Oxford University, who was sent by the new King George to establish the state of Georgia in the US, which was to be a state for the deserving poor, i.e. poor people in British prisons who hadn't committed any crime other than being poor, where slavery was banned. And he got there and he found that, as you'd expect, most people found it quite hard work. And because he was essentially, although he was sent by George um, the first, he was at heart a Jacobite. He took out with him Highlanders from Inverness uh, and, you know, the Highlands properly, um, because they were tough and hardworking and they settled with him. And one of the things that I find really interesting, and it is slightly later, but this in mm. 1736, he took a bunch of Highlanders to right down on the south coast of Georgia, where it very close to the Florida border, which was controlled by the Spanish. And they established New Inverness and the the kind of main clan there were the Macintoshes. And New Inverness grew and became a, a, an important trading centre. So at some stage, and I'm not entirely sure exactly when, it was renamed Darien. And in mm. the American Revolutionary War, the War of Independence from the British, so only 40 years later, the leader of the independence movement in Georgia was Lachlan Mackintosh. So a Jacobite from Inverness brought over... We should clarify that Jacobites are people who wanted the original Catholic monarchy back. Well, Um, Stuart-supporting, so they were supporting Charles. And so there's something for me that probably I don't think has been researched enough about the influence of, you know, Stuart-supporting Scots who established particularly trading ports, actually, on the east coast of the United States, who were then pivotal figures in the War of Independence. Um, So that's a little in parenthesis there for us to think about more. And the Darien connection, I thought, was really interesting because I didn't know about the other Darien. I mean, there is there is work there is work done in America, obviously, on this. I mean, there of the sort of Jacobite, you know, the um, the losers of of the Jacobite rebellion, sort of going off to America and then forming a core. Not all of them, it has to be said. I mean, it's a mixed bag, but certainly there there is a there is a trend there. What it gets at, I think, is the very fascinating mixture of fluidity and search for permanence that characterizes this period of world history, right? If you fail somewhere, go somewhere else and do something else. And and because that is available, because that mobility is available, you get these projects, you get, particularly in America, you get these new ideas popping up. But you also get, for those who don't move, and one of my one of my personal little crusades is to say that we should be able to write a global history of people who don't move, people who stay still. For them, they need a way of influencing and controlling the economy around them, right? 
So if you're if you're a Scottish Highlander and you go off to settle in Georgia, that's fantastic. If you don't, if you want to stay in your local town and look after your family and have roots in a place, you still need some way in this world of being able to say, yeah, these global economic forces are scary and I need this. And that is where state institutions are really vital. And that, I think, is why that search for global influence of people who don't move is a really essential part of why unions form and why political economies become coherent and seek to act in a global world. We should probably talk about Ireland. Let's talk about Ireland. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I I want to say, how do you see, how is the union with Ireland different from the union with Scotland? So my thinking on this goes back to one of the great historians of early modern and modern Ireland, Nicholas Canning, who famously wrote several histories of this, but the, the, the phrase he used to use was kingdom or colony. And there is always an uncertainty in England, in Scotland, across actually so much of Britain about whether or not Ireland is something that we are treating as a colony or something that is a kingdom that is equal. Partly that's a question of religion, right? Ireland remains dominantly Catholic. There have been a series of plantations which is what they, which is literally what they were called, which is when you people from most of the lowlands of Scotland were moved from the lowlands of Scotland to Ireland in the early 17th century and settled there. That is in some ways the origin of some parts of what is now the unionist community in Northern Ireland, right? And indeed, in the reign of Charles II, in the, in the mid to late 17th century, there's a man called Petty who goes out as an administrator in Ireland and develops what he calls political arithmetic which is an early attempt at basically saying all people are just numbers and we can move them around and make them do stuff. And that's very much a colonial way of thinking, right? On the other hand, it is right there. On the other hand, technically, it is a part of the royal title. On the other hand, it's very close and very populous and can do things like manufacture stuff. It's also a major source of geopolitical risk because it is often in revolt and has its own Anglo-Irish and Irish aristocracy who have contacts and friends in mainland Europe. So this question of kingdom or colony is never resolved. Never resolved. There's a very strange thing that I term the Anglo-Irish Union of 1699, in which, for complicated reasons, again to do with textile manufacturing, it is asserted that the English Parliament has control over Ireland's foreign trade which makes no sense because Ireland has its own parliament, but they're not prepared to allow Ireland to develop its own economic agencies. They say, no, can't do that. And this strange situation in which Ireland lives somewhere between a full part of the union and a part of a world of imperial projects lives right on through. Obviously, eventually in the early 19th century, there is a full parliamentary union between Great Britain and Ireland. That lasts through the 19th century. It causes complete chaos in the later 19th century, because all the seats keep on being won by what was no, what's known as the Irish Parliamentary Party, which want at least home rule, if not independence. Still home rule in the, 17th, in the 19th century, really. But that question is never resolved. And it's never resolved until ultimately you get to the violence of the Easter Rising and Irish Can I ask you? Can I ask you sort of a, a, a simple question, shall we say? I mean, a, a, a question that we might sort of think. So, you have a, a, a union with Wales, which is basically a, an absorption of, of Wales into England in the 16th century, effectively, right? Then you have a union with Scotland, which creates the a, a new kingdom, effectively, of Great Britain. 
Why is the Irish Union different again? I mean, why is there not an attempt? I mean, again, this is for the benefit, you know, just sort of just trying to explain why, you know, the union with Ireland results in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, rather than a whole new kingdom as you had with the Anglo-Scottish Union. Why is that? There's multiple reasons. One of the curiosities, we talked about dynasties earlier, one Mm. of the curiosities of those first two unions is in both of those cases, the Welsh Union and the Scottish, we haven't talked about Wales at all, we can do more, it's actually a Welsh or Scottish monarch inheriting the throne of England, who so then... The Tudors ins- come across and... Yeah, because the Tudors are originally a Welsh family, right? And it's they who put an end, in my view, tragically, to independent Welsh law. If anybody wants to do a fun research project, Welsh law is endlessly fascinating because legitimate and illegitimate children have equal claims on inheritance. It's really complicated. It's great fun. Look at it. Anyway, <laughs> the, the, the point is that in both those cases you have a population that are not religiously scary, or if they are, it's for complicated reasons. So in Scotland, obviously, you do have some Catholics, some very anti-Episcopalian Presbyterians, but it's a mix that is familiar. In Ireland, it's essentially been conquered. There's never any political elite that comes across to anything like the same extent. But also, you have... a a population that is overwhelmingly Catholic, you have a population that is really significantly sized and seems distant and seems scary and is constantly a source of revolt, right? There are permanent struggles all through the 17th century, military struggles, um, during some of which the English commit unspeakable horrors. And so there is always a fundamentally different relationship. And that question I go back to of kingdom or colony is never resolved. So just a, a quick question before we move on really also to more of the geopolitics geopolitics today, because we will have to deal mm. with it. Um, if, and this is the historian's question for you, of course, Hugo, if Castlereagh, uh, had, if Castlereagh had, had managed to persuade the king to accept Catholic emancipation on the union of, of Britain and Ireland, do you think that union would have had a fighting chance? Okay, a bit of context. <laughs> in parliamentary elections, until Catholic emancipation, which is in the 1820s, 1827, I think, mm. Catholics can't vote. This obviously makes any kind of parliamentary union between Britain and Ireland kind of bizarre because the population is Catholic and it concentrates power in a very small number of Protestant English origin landholders. So that's the context. Or, or Scottish, Hugo, or Scottish, I think. Or Scottish, yeah. yeah, we, yeah. No, we, we should emphasize that. Yeah. Do I think, well, I mean, I'm always nervous of counterfactual history, um, despite, <laughs> despite, despite the wishes of some at the Centre for Geopolitics. I think there are paths through the, the, the longer 19th century that do not end up with the violent separation that we see in the 1910s and 20s. What I do think is that if Catholic emancipation had been acknowledged from the start, the world would have evolved so differently because it would have also meant a very different relationship between the political elite and their voters. Because the push for Catholic emancipation alienates and creates divisions between those in Parliament who want to represent Ireland but are dubious of Catholic emancipation and so forth. I don't think it's possible to answer that question. 
what I do think is that it demonstrates historical contingency. And it also demonstrates that unions are products of circumstance, particularly when they don't have written constitutions. And that's my lead into the present. Okay, but before we lead into, in fact, this maybe maybe this question does lead into the present because you've talked about Ireland as being kingdom or colony, and the other thing that I wonder whether we might consider is threat, because the way you just described it, saying you know Ireland was always an unstable bunch of insurrectors. <laughs> I don't think I quite said that. <laughs> Was an, it was unstable union, Suzanne, I think is what you... Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, is there a part of the explanation of why mm. England stroke Britain behaved in that way towards Ireland, that it was seen as a threat either simply because of um, instability or because it could be manipulated by other states who were seeking to undermine or subvert England stroke Britain? Okay, the short answer is yes, but two things. Firstly, obviously, as I talk about this subject, I'm coming at it from the perspective of academic work on the formation of the union, which I've written as someone from England, right? So we are seeing and engaging with this topic from that perspective, partly. Addy, from a Scottish perspective, Mm -hmm. Suzanne and I from an English perspective. I think it's quite important to recognize that. It's also quite important to recognize that when we talk about Ireland as a threat, or, or something like that, or indeed, as I did, as, as insurrection. We are describing it from a particular perspective based on our own area of study and the sources we are looking at, mm. right? Mm. Different academic traditions, rightly, are going to talk in different terms. Those terms are very, very English. And it's very important to really emphasize that. Within that context, the early modern period is more violent in general. Warfare is easier. Warfare happens more often. Warfare, because it is not as society-involving, is less consequential in that sense. Any area of your country where people are disaffected with the system of union is a potential thing that undermines your freedom of action. As you've just highlighted in the, in the Oglethorpe case, of course, that's also true of the Highlands of Scotland where there are large communities of mostly Catholic Highlanders who are deeply dissatisfied with the, with the union, with the current state of the monarchy, with all those things. So, and this is true today, right? Large parts of any country that are disaffected represent a threat to the stability and permanence of whichever political system is in the center. That threat could be economic, that threat could be social, that threat could be political, that threat could be violent, that threat could be based on terrorism or anything similar. Or it could be geopolitical, i.e. it's it's exploitable by an adversary. Exactly. Okay, so let's move us on to modern geopolitics. And I don't know, Hugo, where do you want to start? Well, I mean, we were, we were chatting about how we were going to structure this podcast just before the lights went on, as it were. And one of the things, Ali, that you mentioned was that what is the UK union and why is it not like the United States and why is it not like the European Union? That's right. Oh, actually, I mean, I think it's one of those common questions that pops up all the time. Yeah. So, but let's start with the American comparison because I think that's the most interesting. America has had its, its union baked in from the start and codified. Right, we have 
a constitution that is written and fixed and gets amended in fixed ways. As we've just discussed, the way the UK union involved is horrifically complicated and confusing, and there's no written constitution, and it's all very contingent on everything else. Well, there's no, no so let me stop you there, actually. And just okay. Say, would you say, would you say it's not written or not codified? Because obviously we do have a number of documents that would go up to make, contribute to the constitution, right? Would we not? Or We do. Mm-hmm. This is obviously something that I debate with my students a lot, right? And right. this gets very legally complicated. As a historian, when people say we have a written constitution, but it's not codified, I find that unhelpful. Okay. Because it implies the existence of a document somewhere that has ultimate authority. There is no document that yeah, has authority point. beyond Parliament. Fair point. Fair point. Right? If, if Parliament wakes up and says, actually, the sky is green and passes that law, the sky is green, as far as we're concerned. And there is no body in the land that should or really can say no. So in that sense, we have pieces of legislation that add up to a constitution. But we don't have a document somewhere, right? The Supreme Court of this country cannot strike down a law as unconstitutional in that sense, unless they're arguing that Parliament hasn't passed it. So that that would be my point there. And the the, the kind of haphazard nature of all this means that we have a system right now in in, in, in the UK where we have restored parliaments in Scotland, the Senate in Wales, and sort of in Northern Ireland, which is very, very complicated. And the way those work is, they were passed in the, in the late 90s, right? And the way they work is power is devolved. All power is devolved to those parliaments, except for the ones that Westminster wants. So in other words, they are set up so that power is reserved. And that's all parliamentary legislation, and that can change and move. And there is no devolved administration in England, right? The Parliament of Great of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, is the devolved administration of England. If you compare that to the United States, everything is neatly divided into states which have upper chambers and lower chambers, unless you're Nebraska, and everything kind of is formalized and works in a set way. And those are very different things. They're also, of course, states, not nations, which is an interesting conversation to get to. Although we've only got about three minutes left. so Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and the EU, Hugo, because now I'm trying to, there's, there's kind of parallels and not parallels everywhere, because in the EU, individual member states have reserved powers, don't they? So foreign and defence, I mean, in a way, in a weird way, they're the kind of same, but in the opposite. Exactly. And actually, this is where we have three minutes, so we're going to do this, and then we're going to do, I imagine we'll want to get on to sort of looking forward a bit. This is where we have to talk about Brexit, because Brexit is fascinating. When the Brexit referendum was happening, no one was really talking about Northern Ireland very much. Sadly. There, was, there, was, there were a couple of events. Um, John Major and Tony Blair did one. And afterwards, Northern Ireland completely dominated the process of Brexit for the next five years. And the reason for that is it goes right back to the start, to our old friends, the world smugglers, and the idea of economic borders and single markets. Because states are coherent, or unions are coherent, to the extent to which all their borders line up, right? And to which they can manage single markets and engage with the global economy as one actor. And I think I'm going to pause there. 
I think that is a good place to pause, if I may say so, Hugo, because I think there's so much there we need to unpack and explore and interrogate. What do you think, Suzanne, if we invite Hugo back for a uh, a second part, in a sense, because it's it's too rich a topic, I think, for us to leave uh, to leave hanging like that anyway. For the modern version, I think, yes, um, yes we're going to do that, Hugo, because <laughs> we're out of time and we can't possibly do justice to the modern world uh, in in half a minute. But um, thank you so much for our historical perspective. And um, I love the idea about the people who don't move, actually. That was a that was a roller coaster, I have to say. I mean, there was so much in there, Hugo, that we, we're going to have to just bring you back. So um, I think we can we can explore uh, some of the questions you raise uh, and some of the questions we, we, you know, we've discussed. I think we can explore it in a little bit more depth, particularly when it comes to, as you pointed out, you know, the extremely complicated uh, situation that you know, we find ourselves in the contemporary in the contemporary world. I look forward to it and thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. Great. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.